Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist, author, and the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Susan Page has covered six White House administrations and 10 presidential elections and interviewed nine presidents. She was the first woman to serve as the music chairman of the Gridiron Club show and was the president of the club, the oldest association of journalists in Washington in 2011. She was president of the White House Correspondents Association in 2000. And in 2019, she wrote a biography of former First Lady Barbara Bush titled The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty. And she's working on an upcoming biography of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Earlier this month, she served as moderator of the 2020 vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, which took place on October 7th, 2020 in Salt Lake City, which feels like a year ago at this point in 2020. Susan Page, it's an honor to welcome you to Words Matter. Hey, Katie, it's great to be with you. Also joining me is Jen Duck, who has been at Belmont all week and dealing with all of the craziness of the debate, which actually happened despite several people thinking maybe it it wouldn't, but it actually did. Jen, welcome. Thank you. Congratulations on having the second presidential debate there at Belmont in Nashville. I'm sure that was an incredible experience. I was there. It happened. It was, uh, as you saw on TV, it was uh, quite an event and the second time Belmont hosted. So really a pleasure to be on the other side this year as a professor seeing the, the university have the debate. Well, we're going to get into it in just a little bit. But Susan, before we talk about politics and presidents and the 2020 campaign, let's talk about you just for a minute. Can you tell our listeners where your interest in journalism started and how you go from Wichita, Kansas, to interviewing presidents and moderating national debates? So only in journalism, right, can uh, can you have that kind of trajectory? You know, I think like a lot of journalists, I went into the newsroom of my high school newspaper, my high school yearbook in Wichita, Kansas, Wichita Southeast. And just felt like that was where I belonged to be. You know, that's just where I belonged. Uh, I think there are people who who walk into a classroom and know they're kind of meant to be a teacher or they go into a hospital and they know they really were meant to be a nurse or a doctor. And that was sort of how I felt about journalism. That was a long time ago, and I've never really looked back, never had a regret, never had something else I wanted to do as much as I wanted to do journalism. I feel you on that for sure. And we really admire all that work you've done. So as Katie said, you've been at USA Today for 25 years. And she mentioned you served as Washington bureau chief. I have to say, I had an incredible bureau chief when I first started out at ABC News, who you probably know, Robin Sproul. Ah, She's my good friend. (laughs) Robin was amazing. Such a great mentor to me as I was covering the White House as just a young cub reporter. But for those who don't know, what are the responsibilities of a Washington bureau chief? So different bureaus organize themselves in different ways. And someone like Robin Sproul, who was the dean of Washington Bureau Chiefs until she retired, ran that bureau, right? She directed traffic. She told people what to do. She did hiring and firing and all that kind of thing. That is not really the way we've shaped the job that I do 
at USA Today. I had been a White House correspondent and then the chief of our White House team. But when I, and when I became the Washington bureau chief, it was to continue doing reporting and writing and set kind of big direction for the bureau. Like we should, let's focus more on this and less on that or deal with with some personnel issues. But I do almost no editing of copy and I don't run the bureau the way some Washington bureau chiefs do. I think there are kind of two models for Washington bureau chiefs, public ones and private ones. And I have more of a kind of public uh, Washington bureau chief mode. So let's talk a little bit about the history of presidential debates before we kind of dive in on what we've seen in the last month or so. So the first televised presidential debate was between JFK and Richard Nixon in 1960. And they... They proved so decisive in Kennedy's narrow victory that it wasn't until 76 that another Republican at the time, Gerald Ford, agreed to a debate. And 1976 was also the year that NPR's Pauline Frederick became the first woman to moderate a national debate between President Gerald Ford and then-Governor Jimmy Carter— And that same year, Barbara Walters moderated the third debate between Ford and Carter. So back then, there was a moderator, and then there were several journalists who also participated in the questioning during the debate. Do you think it was a mistake to move away from that format? I I don't. I mean, I think that was a, a great format. It suited the times. But I think you're better off having a single moderator who is kind of in control of the situation. And the the earlier debates, you know, there was a, not really a, an infrastructure to do debates. The League of Women Voters did some of them. There would be, like, negotiations on who was going to sponsor debates. It was only in relatively recent times that the Commission on Presidential Debates was established to try to kind of formalize a process, unofficially, but one that tried to guarantee or do all you could do to guarantee that debates would take place. Because usually incumbent presidents are not— eager to participate in debates. So the, the Commission on Presidential Debates kind of evolved as something that made debates more likely to happen. And in fact, four years ago, I was having breakfast with Frank Ferenkopf and Janet Brown, who run the Commission on Presidential Debates, to just talk about the debate set cycle, because I always have been covering the debates. And Frank said, uh, you know, it's really too bad we could never choose you as a moderator, because once we went to a solar moderator, we just have to have people who are from TV. And mm-hmm. I said, I didn't take offense. I said, you know, you're exactly right. You really need a TV person to do it. So you imagine my surprise when Frank called me about five weeks ago and said, hey, would you like to moderate the vice presidential debate? And I said, you bet. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting as someone who who comes from TV. But a lot of times you want those print reporters because they go in so deep and they can, you know, not that TV reporters don't do that. But it's, it's always good to have a, a mix, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and following up on this, we really did our homework on this one. Barbara Walters also moderated a debate in 1984 between President Ronald Reagan and former Vice President Walter Mondale. In 1988, Judy Woodruff became the first woman to moderate a vice presidential debate as Senator Lloyd Benson delivered his famous You're No Jack Kennedy line against then-Senator Dan Quayle. In 1992, Carol Simpson of ABC News became the first woman of color to moderate a presidential debate. And of course, the late Gwen Ifill famously moderated vice presidential debates in 2004 and 2008. We should also note that since 2008, female journalists like Martha Raddatz, who I had the pleasure of working with, Candy Crowley and Elaine Quijano, and you yourself have all moderated either presidential or vice presidential debates. One of the things that really stuck out this year was the negative media attention 
focused specifically on NBC's Kristen Welker leading up to last week's debate. And I have to say now, after the debate, there's a lot of praise for her, and rightfully so. She did a great job. But do moderators usually take that much heat before a debate, especially from a sitting president? What do you make of all that? So President Trump has broken a lot of norms, and this is one of the norms he's broken. I mean, it's not like other presidents don't have gripes about journalists, either as debate moderators or as people who just cover them day to day. But President Trump has taken a much more aggressive stance against the journalist, uh, questioning the integrity and the motives and the behavior of the journalists who cover him. He's called the press the enemy of the people. He's accused the press of being fake news. He's had a particularly harsh words for CNN. So he has taken a different stance than the previous presidents I've covered. He, and in, in a way, I think that that reflects him personally, but also reflects kind of the the blood sport that politics has become. And it reflects, I think, also the rise of social media, where an accusation can just ricochet around the world in an instant and where anybody with a point of view can express it in a way that's pretty public. I think it's just what we face now. And I did, I totally agree with you that Kristen did a fantastic job uh, and uh, really, really salute the job that she did. Yeah. And I think I have to say, just as a professor to my students, it was great to have you both as examples to say journalism is alive and well. So I, they always ask me, you know, what do you do when you're attacked? And I kind of always say, just keep your head down and keep working and keep doing your job as that watchdog role and gatekeeper. And the rhetoric does seem higher now. So you mentioned you've been covering these debates for a while before you moderated this year. And I want to talk about the debates themselves and their value and their worth to the electorate and to the individual voter. And and to the point that you just made about social media, debates kind of came about and really grew in popularity in an era of television that we are no longer in, before there was 24-hour cable news, before you could click a button and go live straight to 100 million followers on Twitter anytime that you want. So do you think that debates, especially given everything that's happened this year, are more or less useful to voters in the the last 45 years? So voters have access to a lot more information than they ever did. A voter who wants to watch any campaign rally for any candidate can do so. We've had the rise of C-SPAN. That's been a huge resource for citizens as well. But I think there is nothing quite like a debate. It is a time when the candidates stand side by side. They have to interact with each other. Voters get to get a sense of them as human beings, as leaders, a sense of their character, and a sense of their policy positions and how their policies compare. Some people have said that debates are no longer so valuable. I would disagree with that because if you don't have debates, what you have are campaign ads and candidates able to choose the interviewer they want to talk to. And often candidates will choose a friendly interviewer as opposed to either an independent-minded one or an unfriendly one. This is that one chance to force candidates to answer questions, including questions they don't want to answer, and to do it standing next to the other candidate. And I think there's a real value in that. Is that also a little nerve-wracking when you're the moderator, though, to, <laughs> to ask those questions? You know, it was, it was funny. I was really not nervous once it started. Like, when I walked out there, I was a little nervous. But I sat down, and 
I had my back to the audience. All the only people I saw were Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, and just the three of us on stage. And we were 12 feet apart because of the of COVID-19, but it didn't feel like we were that far apart. And we were our own little pot of three people in a, in a kind of a high stakes situation. But it, I was actually not. I was actually not that nervous. <laughs> You could see Mike Pence, Kamala Harris, and then the one bug that got its own Saturday Night Live character, <laughs> the fly. Could you see the fly? I couldn't see the fly. And you we finish, and I walk off. St- I, I, we finish, and I kept seated because I didn't want to get in the picture for the candidates and their spouses came up and right. all that. But eventually, the director said in my ear, "You know, why don't you stand up and walk off?" Because <laughs> you know, so I thought, okay. So I stood up and walked off. And we'd had this 90-minute debate on the big issues facing the country, and all anybody was talking about was this fly. And I'm going, yeah. what fly? What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I couldn't see the fly. Pence was unaware of the fly. I haven't heard Senator Harris be asked about the fly, but I don't know if she saw it either. She did. I think oh. Rachel Maddow asked her about it. She <laughs> said she saw the fly, or at least she nodded that she saw it. But so— if you could take us behind the scenes about how debate moderators come up with the topics and these Mm -hmm. questions. We saw a dramatization a little bit in the movie Bombshell about Megyn Kelly preparing for the debate that famously Donald Trump made several comments, negative comments about her, and also kind of a Michael Jordan pizza food poisoning moment with her coffee that morning and whether or not that was maybe foul play or not. But obviously that was a dramatized Hollywood version of debate prep, but we got at least a glimpse of it. But tell us the reality. What's it like behind the scenes? How do you come up with the topics? Who do you talk to? Bring us into the room or rooms. So, and of course, Megyn Kelly's situation was a primary debate, a little bit different from the general election debates. This was a surprise to me. When the commission asked me to do the debate and I accepted, they said, you should do nine topics. You can do any topics you want. You can ask any questions you want. Don't tell us. Don't tell anyone. So for the presidential debates, the six topics were announced in advance. But for the vice presidential debate, it was my nine topics, my questions, and we were actually quite concerned that somebody might try to hack into the system to find sure. the questions because sure. there's so much hacking that goes on now. So we actually took I had a little team of four people at USA Today who um, worked with me in doing research and preparation for the debate. And we took more severe cybersecurity measures than I've ever taken in my life to try to make sure it didn't get hacked. So when I walked out there with my binder and my, I had actually... 11 topics worked up just in case some, you know, so I'd had a, some extras in case it turned out to be necessary, which was not the case. Nobody, neither the candidates, neither, not the campaigns, not even the debate commission knew what topics I had chosen. And who did you just pick from the headlines as well as what was going on in the country at the time? Who did you talk to about the, the topics and how did you decide what took priority? So I tried to think through what, what was the goal of a debate. And the goal was not an interview and it was not a news conference. It's a different thing. And the goal is to help voters. So I tried to choose topics that voters care about and not topics that pundits care about or political reporters care about. You know, we weren't going to do the future of the Senate filibuster. We were going to do healthcare <laughs> and jobs and climate change, and issues that resonated. You know, when I talk to voters, what do they care about? They care, first of all, about the health 
uh, the health of their families with all these Americans who have died from COVID-19. They care about the economic consequences, all these people, millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. Uh, they care about the education of their kids, now a duty uh, for a lot of parents at home. They care about climate change when they see these hurricanes and these forest fires. So those are the issues I wanted to talk about. So last week, we saw something pretty unprecedented in the history of presidential debates, those muted microphones. In addition to journalism, I teach a lot of production and audio engineering students in my media ethics class. And needless to say, we had a pretty healthy conversation about all this leading up to the debate and after the debate. But I'm really curious to know what you think. Did the muted microphones help or did they hurt? So I'd be kind of a skeptic about muting the mics, and I turned out to be wrong. I thought they were great. They provided some order in this debate that we didn't have last time around. Both candidates, and especially President Trump, behaved a lot better, followed the rules much more closely. I thought it was great both that they had two minutes to speak their piece and the other person couldn't interrupt them. Also, I thought it was great that after two minutes, their mic was cut off because I can tell you I had a terrible time getting Mike Pence to stick to two minutes, and he just ignored me and rolled past when I tried to call time on him. So I'm a fan of muting the mics to my surprise. Yeah, and I was just going to ask you that too. So if the mics had been muted in the vice presidential debate, do you think it would have gone a little differently? I think it would have been helpful because this was a strategy that Pence had clearly decided to follow. And when I was there, you know, sitting on this desk, there are four clocks on the desk. Two of them show me the cumulative speaking time of the two candidates. So I could tell exactly how long uh, to the second Mike Pence had spoken and how long Kamala Harris had spoken. And after about 15 minutes, Mike Pence had lots more time than, than Harris because he kept running over the time limits and ignoring my protestations. And so I began to focus a lot on trying to get that even because I thought it was important they have equal time to speak. And uh, if you will let me brag about this, CNN was running a cumulative clock as well. And they determined that Mike Pence spoke for 36 minutes and 27 seconds and that Kamala Harris spoke for 36 minutes and 24 seconds, which is pretty much equal time. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that, actually. I remember when CNN brought that up. So you you see both of those clocks, which means you're managing that in addition to all of the substance and keeping them from talking over each other and the sound and everything that's happening. Did, the, did Pence and Harris also see the clocks? No, they, they could not see the cumulative clocks. They could see when their time was up. Uh, and, and the aftermath, I thought, I should have said to Mike Pence, you know, when the light goes yellow on your camera, it means you've got 30 seconds. When it goes red, it means your time is up. But I didn't do that. Maybe I should have. As a female moderator, sometimes I think that, like, man, we got to revert back to what we tell our children. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of uh, talk after the debate that it was sexist of him to talk over me. And I didn't really think... I didn't think it was sexist him to do it. I thought it was his strategy to try to control the debate. I did think there was some gender politics going on with Senator Harris. I think Senator Harris was less prosecutorial, less aggressive than she is ordinarily, than she is in Senate judiciary hearings where we've, we've seen her in action because she was concerned that as a female candidate, that would put some voters off. She was a, she was a more restrained debater than I had expected her to be. Yeah, and Katie and I actually talked about this in a previous episode we had a historian on, that female candidates of every stripe, of every party. So I remember Sarah Palin in 2008 saying, yeah, it's harder to be a woman, how you have to just come at these things so differently. So it's it's interesting because you've, you've covered this so much longer, but kind of comparing past female presidential, vice presidential 
candidates, it's is that something we commonly see? It's not just Kamala Harris. It's oh, beyond that. Total double blind for female candidates because you need to look forceful and like a leader and strong and you're always at risk of looking shrill or or whatever. You know, this was clearly a problem for Hillary Clinton four years ago. So I can't, female candidates have a burden there that male candidates don't. I will say that it's getting better, that I think voters are more comfortable with strong women than they used to be. So I think it's easier for uh, Kamala Harris than it was for Geraldine Ferraro, for instance, who I covered in 1984, the first woman on a national, major party national ticket. Then there were all these debates over whether she should wear skirts or pants. We've at least gotten past that. (laughs) (laughs) You you hope we have gotten past that, but there are some spaces, even in Washington, D.C. to this day, that we still haven't gotten past the, the skirts or pants issue and in courtrooms, might I add, with certain judges. But anyway, so... As a journalist, just straight up or down, do you think debates change voters' minds? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes, not always. The first campaign I covered was in 1980. The debate in 1984 against Mondale and Reagan definitely was very important in in reassuring people at Reagan. The debate in 1980 definitely, where Reagan finished famously with, are you better off than you were four years ago? definitely made voters feel more comfortable voting for him and uh, underscored their unhappiness with President Carter. There are some debates that haven't mattered much. I think that if you look at this year's debates, the vice president debate would have mattered only if Kamala Harris hadn't done well, because voters didn't know her. They needed to feel like she was competent and competent to become president. And once they felt reassured about that, they were happy to disregard the vice presidential pick. I think the first debate cost Trump a lot. I think he lost some support there because of his disruptive performance in the first debate. I think he got some of that back by a more respectful performance in the second. I suppose that there's something also to be said for him either a couple of weeks ago with Savannah Guthrie or with the debate showing that he could stand up and speak and breathe normally after his COVID diagnosis. I'm sure that that was at least a point to prove for the campaign and and for the president himself. So there's something to be said for voters at least being able to see that on stage in a way that they wouldn't otherwise get an opportunity to. So we've looked back at the history of debates now looking ahead and after 2020 has kind of changed so many things in this in this race and and with debates generally, what do you think the future of presidential and vice presidential debates are after 2020? Do you think they're going to change? I I hope they continue to be held. There's always a lot of fire and tumult around debates, criticism of the debate commission. I'm sure they're glad that they're over now for this cycle. Uh, But I do think they're very valuable. And um, I hope they Continue. Nobody makes candidates debate. There's no law that says they have to debate. But I really think it is important that there be an expectation that they stand up there and take questions next to the person they're running against. You know, last week we talked about Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing. And interestingly, the same could be said of confirmation hearings in the interest of informing the public and the electorate about these people that either represent them or then hold lifelong positions in 
one of the three branches of government. They Nothing in the Constitution requires her confirmation hearing, just like the debates, but they, I believe, are valuable for the people to be able to see a justice or a future justice reason through things and talk in a way that they also see their candidates in a debate. I also hope they aren't going anywhere, but we'll see. Maybe they'll <laughs> be on Instagram Live by then, or TikTok, I guess, is what the kids are doing these days, but something <laughs> different. Well, I mean, even the fly has his own Twitter account, so who knows where Several. we're going with. I mean, <laughs> 30, Susan, 30 seconds. I was on Twitter. 30 seconds after the fly landed on his head, there were at least 10 Twitter accounts. <laughs> Mike Pence's fly, fly on Mike mm-hmm. Pence's head. I mean, it was, the internet moves quickly. <laughs> and I, I kind of want to end on this note because I think this is really important. So things have obviously changed from your time in Washington, Susan, you can really speak to this because we've noted that you've covered the White House during six different presidential administrations. You've interviewed nine presidents. You've covered 10 presidential elections. Um, but have things changed for the better or worse? And are journalists more able to present more facts and information to the American people with social media and all this technology? Or is social media kind of disregarding that mission of journalists? Well, it's definitely different. Uh, and there are some things that are worse. But I think there are a lot of things that are better. The things that are better are the ability to get a story out there. Uh, You know, I I worked for Newsday before I worked for USA Today, and I would sometimes do stories I thought were really good stories, and it was a real chore to get anyone to pay attention to them unless they lived on Long Island where Newsday circulated. Today, anybody can do a story for any publication or just on their own, and if it's got legs, if it's powerful and important, it can be heard. That's that's a big difference. Another difference that I think is good is transparency. It's much more transparent than it used to be. There's much more demand to know who you talk to and if it's an anonymous source, why they're anonymous. And if, you, if you're quoting anonymous sources, how many anonymous sources are you quoting? And link to databases to show, to back up whatever it is you're saying. These are things that weren't possible or expected when I first started working in journalism, but they are now. And I think that's a good thing, too. Not everything is good. People of uh, the faith in the news media has been eroded, as have faith in a lot of American institutions. We've got to work to rebuild that. But I guess I think the good developments outweigh the bad developments. And in any case, you can't do anything about the developments. You just have to deal with them. So you might as well deal with them and see the ways in which they are positive, not negative. Well, we're grateful for your time, and we hopefully look forward to having you on again once you finish your book about Speaker Pelosi uh, in the coming months. We look forward to chatting with you about that one. But for now, thank you for joining us, and thank you for all of your hard work on the vice presidential debate. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please Rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.